It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Commonwealth Voices is a podcast about citizens coming together to participate in democracy and influence the institutions that shape their lives. Welcome to Commonwealth Voices. I'm Royfield Brown. I'll be your host and guide in the series featuring stories from across the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth covers 20% of the world's land area and six continents, with an estimated population of 2.4 billion people, that is collectively a third of the world population, each with their own unique voice. The Commonwealth Foundation supports people's participation in democracy and development, and Commonwealth Voices brings you those people's stories. The Foundation recently hosted the Commonwealth People's Forum, focused on the theme of inclusive governance. Today I'm speaking to BJ Christian Ryan, the Director General of the Commonwealth Foundation. So BJ, how long have you actually been in Accra now? I've been in Accra for two days. And if you had to sum up Accra in one sentence, what would it be with your almost Accra-like virgin eyes? You've only been there for two days. Surprising. How so? It's a city that's on the up. There's mm-hmm. a lot of development. Um, the, you know, a lot of nice, clean, new, high-rise buildings, um, clubs, pubs places where middle-class people, middle-class Ghanaians are gathering, lots of new buildings, um, new hotels going up. So you can see that uh, economically Accra is doing, doing pretty well. Of course, you ask yourself questions about what that means for the region and how the region as a whole, how Ghana as a whole is faring. But you recognise also the universal nature of some of those conundrums for countries you know, you want to create growth centres, you want to encourage economic development, but at the same time, you recognise the need for equity across the country, across the region. So today we're going to look at the panel, which was on just economies. And you've mentioned that the Ghanaian economy is definitely on the up and Ghana is definitely one of the tigers, if that's, uh, I'm putting the wrong animal in the wrong bit of uh, the world there. But it's a, a lion economy, shall we say, um, in terms of West Africa. You had Owen Jones chair this panel, who's somewhat of a a superstar of the left 
How did you manage to get that big money transfer? Well, I think it was the, first of all, it's the coherence of the programme, the relevance of the programme. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think uh, Owens understood uh, that the Commonwealth, there are organisations within the Commonwealth that are doing interesting things. It looked at our work and understood that we had, we were providing a platform here for a timely discussion. Timely because, of course, one of the dominant th- themes behind the heads of government meeting was trade. Now, whilst on the one hand, um, there's a lot of attention focused on the potential for intra-Commonwealth trade, civil society organisations, whilst, of course, supporting that push for wealth generation, have got another eye on the kind of moral, ethical, equity dimensions of those trade discussions. It's a good example of the way in which a civic discussion can complement and add a different perspective to the official discussions that were taking place between ministers in the Chogham main event, if you will. You know, what is a just economy? I think theoretically it makes sense, but how do you quantify that? You have to be wary of imposing a universal definition, given the diversity of uh, the Commonwealth. So what a pl- what uh, people in Nigeria would call uh, a just economy might look different completely to what colleagues in Kiribati or Tonga might call a just economy. Mm-hmm. In the Pacific Islands, for example, there's a great deal of emphasis on the blue economy, on using oceans and marine resources and seeing those as an integral part of any economic mix. Whereas in West Africa, there might be a greater degree of emphasis on minerals and natural resources, for example. If so, you have to be aware, I think, of beware of universal prescriptions. But one of the things that we would say, and one of the things that came out of the, of the Commonwealth People's Forum, was that a just economies focuses very much on equitable participation in economic activity. And that's not just between um, you know, haves and have-nots. There are many layers to that. Women, for example, participate in economies in different ways to men. People with disabilities are excluded from certain types of economic activity, for example. And so I think what we wanted to do was to look at the different ways in which different sections of society are prevented from playing their proper part in making just economies a reality. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Thank you so much for coming. I'm Owen Jones. I'm a journalist at The Guardian and an author. We've got an absolutely fantastic panel here to discuss just economies. We've got Sineth here on the right, who is an award-winning journalist who specialises in inequality. He was Royal Affairs Editor at The Hindu and a founder editor of the People's Archive of Royal India. He has a huge body of work stretching back a very long time indeed. Pfizer, who I've been honoured to know for a very long time, is the director of the think tank class. What I'm going to do is ask our fantastic panellists just open for a few minutes with some thoughts but most importantly, I'd like to hear questions from the floor. Thank you. Let me just start by saying what an honour it is to be here. I kind of see my own history is very much linked to the Commonwealth, of course. My mum was from Pakistan and my dad was from the Fiji Islands. People don't have a good understanding of the empire. Uh, there's a tiny bit of empire amnesia in this country. Um, and they don't understand how someone like me could come into being and come to live in London. But I do feel like a child of, of the Commonwealth, and so it's great to be here. I just want to reflect on... Both some of my work in the UK, but also internationally, I worked at Save the Children during the time that we were coming up with the Sustainable Development Goals. Just observations from what happens on Goal 10, the observations of being at the UN and seeing that conversation unfold. Owen said people often forget that Britain has a massive inequality problem, a one made by policy, and it is important to remember that. We are often told that inequality is just the outcome of globalization or things that we can't control. That's not the case. That's not the case in terms of the evidence that one of the main drivers for inequality in this country is the smashing of the unions, deunionization, the fact that workers no longer have power. So when I talk about inequality as a problem in the UK, I think probably the most striking example of that in recent years, that we had the financial crisis caused by um, essentially bankers incentivized to be more greedy. And what we got as an outcome of that is more neoliberalism. We had 
striking cuts to our public services. So what we've seen is more people using food banks. Back 10 years ago, we just saw a few thousand food packages handed out every year. That has gone to above a million. At the other end of the scale, we've seen the richest 1,000 individuals see their wealth double in size in the last 10 years. For a while in the UK, we did have sort of less inequality between the 99% of us and then the richest 1% were running away. What we've seen in the last 10 years is that bottom 1% fall away as well. So we're seeing that the society's band's kind of been stretched at both ends. And it's important to say as well, of course, we have issues of wealth and income inequality, but we also have issues of race and gender and class inequality that are very much intertwined with this issue of income and wealth. I think we don't do enough to bring the inequalities agendas all together, and we often find ourselves um, trading off. So I was lucky enough to work for an international organization where I got to observe a lot of what was happening at the UN and at the World Bank and elsewhere when a lot of decisions were being made about what the new goals would be, and also the financing for development part of that. And what struck me, and I don't want this to get lost in history, there's obviously a goal 10 of the SDGs, um, which is about inequality, reducing inequality within and among countries. That was very vulnerable to deletion up to the end. It was only because civil society continually intervened and stopped it from being taken out. And the thing that we found very difficult about it was, uh, essentially, there are too many goals, some are going to have to go, and you've already got gender, why do you need something on economic inequality as well? So that was... We had conversations around that equality trade-off. And we also heard, and it was really interesting for me as someone from a working class background to observe, was that there weren't many people that we could get on side within that group of UN advocates for different countries because many of them were up for doing some stuff around gender and group-based inequalities. Um, and it really did strike me, looking at that and then looking at what I've seen in the UK over the years, is that whilst people like to talk about economic inequality. They are aware that it's a problem now, much more than it was even when I started my career. My head economist at the time when I was doing a PhD on inequality told me, Pfizer, no one cares about inequality. You're wasting your time. And this was just before the financial crisis. So we've come a long way in that respect. But what we do see is lip service pay economic inequality and inequality and unwillingness to really do what it takes to address that. And the reason for that is that once you get into a conversation about economic inequality. It's not just simply about a few social policies on the side. It's that plus doing something about jobs, uh, doing something about investment in regions that have been ignored for a long time. It's about what you do in terms of power and who has power, the workers. It's about what you do on wealth, who's accumulating wealth and who's not. It's incredibly difficult in, in many political situations. So those are just some initial thoughts from me about what it is that's stopping change from happening. Because I know I don't want to spend another 10 years saying the same old things and the same old numbers. I want change to happen, like I'm sure many people in this room. Thank you. The kind of inequality that has expanded in many ways, not just economic, but it has had its fallout in social, cultural, and political terms as well. In a country the size of India is simply enormous. And you're not going to catch it only in numbers, though the numbers are very significant. On March 8th, India's billionaires did us proud. There are now 121 of them in the Forbes billionaires list. There wasn't a single one before we embarked on our neoliberal advantage adventure in 1991. 
in year 2000 there were just 8 in 2012 there were 53 this march incidentally forbes announces its billionaires list every year on march 8th international women's day uh, i maybe it's an aspirational thing or maybe it's a time zone thing maybe they do it on march 7th and we see it already on 8th but 121 indians who are billionaires now have a wealth equivalent to 22% of our gdp we are talking about 121 individuals in a population of 1.3 billion accounting for 22% of gdp because what the last 25 30 years have been about is what we call a market driven economy which is really a corporate driven economy and i think the fundamental issue if you're going to tackle inequality is that you ought to be able to confront corporate power you're not going to get anywhere if you're not willing to do that you can make transitory changes that look good for a bit and are good for a bit but it's very difficult if you do not set out to tame corporate power on the other hand what do ordinary people earn the socio economic caste census of india 2012 the year we had 53 billionaires showed us that in 75% of indian households rural households there are 179 million rural households in 75% of those the main breadwinner takes home less than 80 dollars a month or that would be about what 50 pounds in 90% of rural households the main breadwinner takes home less than 160 dollars a month and farm households because the inequality crisis has worst affected the agrarian sector in 20 years government data show us over 300000 indian farmers have taken their own lives committed suicide distress driven suicides largely so that's had a tremendous effect on the countryside the collapse of agriculture gigantic migrations the first census in our history 2011 showing urban india adding more human beings than rural india partly because of the migrations which are taking place rural to rural rural to urban in every way with tens of millions of people becoming footloose migrants with no final destination it's in every dimension you're seeing this inequality and i fact is no society can sustain that indefinitely oh there you go give me a round of applause um Fantastic openness from both of you. Um, Sanjay, so one thing just to put to you: this, the defenders of what we would call neoliberalism, privatisation, deregulation, the destruction of the social public sphere in favour of the market, and so on, they would argue that in the last generation there has been an unprecedented fall in global poverty because of the policies that they've advocated. And yes, inequality has grown, and you, we can talk about billionaires and the number that have increased. but also at the bottom end people's living standards have substantially increased as a result of those policies how do you respond to that you're looking at societies in collapse from these inequalities and we are saying ha the numbers don't show this focusing on numbers which are largely fraudulent questionable we have spent the last two decades redefining what is poverty redefining what is housing redefining what is sanitation of course you can bring the numbers down secondly it's like there's no link between poverty and inequality third the most basics of what a human a being should expect most of our societies are not delivering on those mm. 
and for us to say that look the numbers show something different shows higher living standards than ever before sure it shows you those swimming pools sure. you can call it what you like those last 35 years neoliberalism or globalization or you know capitalism is good enough for me but you know it's also a way of describing a particular phase of what's been happening in the last 30 years you need to worry about this level of inequality and it's interesting that many of those who dismissed it earlier the brookings institution had a thing saying the debilitating debate on inequality in the 90s but many of those including the imf and the world bank are now talking about it are now being forced to recognize what a serious issue it is if you think about how inequality is felt and what it means and especially where it happens on race lines within a country or and um, regional lines and so you know we have to look at inequality because it also highlights how we're getting on as a society how close we are together mm. um, and there's some really interesting stuff also about empathy in more equal societies we have more empathy for each other and so in a way when you have huge inequalities and you've seen inequalities grow in many countries and here here in the US especially they've done these kinds of studies which demonstrate that because we don't have that empathy now for each other because we live very separate lives you know we're in these flats with swimming pools or whatever versus living in everyday life or or poor that you just don't have the support for the types of welfare systems that we need to deal with that the issue of inequality is also important in understanding how we get to deal with poverty overall and have sustainable measures that tackle inequality so these things cannot be divorced another question i wanted to pick up on the point of um this people first economy and i can't help but wonder if the problems we're facing don't have their roots in the way that we define economic value and we're fixated on gdp as the macro measure and that's created this schism in which we've got the devaluing basically of well say the valuing of the formal economy if you're earning a, a wage if you have cash in your hand right. that has economic value mm-hmm. whereas for the majority of the world's population is particularly important where older people are concerned their economic contributions are not monetized that's right some are but not all and it's very it's exactly the same with valuing women's work as well mm-hmm. so how do we reorient our definitions our understanding of what economic value is uh, and sometimes i think the la- lack in gdp and the accounting on richness is that we don't include the environment in it the oil rich country when all of a sudden the oil has gone they're not rich any longer and that is uh, an issue that should be incorporated in the wealth and justice Thank you. Well, great questions everyone. I mean just to combine that the, the first and the last there because this is this narrow fixation on GDP. We talk there about informal work about the fact that women do the vast majority of unpaid labor all over the world and also that issue about obviously the environment. I've had the same issue with GDP for for many years and I do think it is essentially used as a neat way to get to all of those underlying issues. So, so the other thing that my lead my head economist said to me way back when that fires don't care about inequality no one cares care about growth or if you're a nice person care about poverty i think how do we change measures indicators like that that are so intertwined with the way the world bank reports or the imf and so how do we push that agenda at that level so i try really hard when i talk about economics now to not use gdp and to use other things so we can change our own language we can talk about measures 
So environmental measures, right? What good is growing if we are damaging the planet? What are we doing on inequality? And I always use a measure of what's happening to children and mental health often, because I think those are better measures of how we're doing as society. Look, in this country, we try to push for measures of well-being, but unfortunately, those were kind of co-opted and yeah. haven't really helped the agenda and haven't really helped no. to push us away from GDP. I mean, I think it does come into your point about an alternative. So I think how far we can force alternative thinkers and alternative politicians to start talking about these other measures is really important. Look, we still need to have an alternative plan and it has to include, it has to put the planet there up front, right? And so often we have a conversation about economics over here and we have a conversation about the environment over here and then we have the conversation about women over here. And so how do we, and that's what I mean by people first economy, how do we bring all of those things in So that's what we often forget. We think we can make this list of policies and that's fine. But actually what we're doing is changing the values in this country, certainly in, in, around the world. We've been told, you know, look after yourself um, and an individualized notion, even with the way our tax system has worked or our public services have worked. Apart from the NHS, the National Health Service here, we too often think about these things, about what we get out of them and rather than ways in which we build solidarity, in which we look after each other. Mm -hmm. So how is it that our policy ideas play into a new value system? Because that is what we're talking about here, ultimately. That is the sustainable change that we're talking about. And it has to, as opposed to the sorts of things we saw, the post-war consensus, it has to include the environment. Silas? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree that besides just a different discourse, you need a new language for Mm. describing much of what's going on. There was an attempt in the early 90s when Professor Mehboobul Haq of Pakistan and Professor Amartya Sen of India tried to create the United Nations Human Development Index. Incidentally, India, which ranks number four in the dollar billionaires in the world, way ahead of the UK. I am not an economist. Adam Smith said something that he is certainly not a good citizen who does not wish to promote by every means in his power the welfare of the whole society of his fellow citizens. Now, I may not be able to define economy just the way you guys have talked about it, but I know that economy is about managing available resources. And I want to believe that there is no single person in this room who doesn't need food, clothing, and shelter. That is our basic needs. None of us here can survive without any of these three things and in the spirit of redefining our common world. Can we stop this whole thing of class? Is it possible that we keep class where it belongs? Can we, can we just forget about the greed? If we really mean business here, unless this whole thing is just a charade. So in Guyana, one of the things that they're struggling with is uh, the recent deal with ExxonMobil for recent oil fines and the bad deal that the government cut mm. with Exxon mm. and the damage that it's going to do to the country. Now, it seems to me that... Uh, all over the world, different countries are fighting ExxonMobil or fighting Shell or fighting whatever. But the logging companies, water privatization, Pepsi. But the struggle is divided by the nation-state boundaries. In other words, Ghana is now fighting ExxonMobil on its own, mm-hmm. mobile on its own. But in four or five other countries, they're probably in the very same battle. You know, what are our strategies or our thoughts for advancing the ways that we can come together less so much around G7, Commonwealth, whatever, and get together around 
fighting Exxon's multinational Mm -hmm. bad deals that they have the power to cut. Because it seems to me that one of the weaknesses in individual governments having to negotiate with big corporations, Mm -hmm. if the big corporations are functioning, are able to function globally and nation states are not thinking that way. So how can we start that with civil society? The, The food issues and the hunger issues you're talking about, that sector exemplifies the kind of corporate power that I'm talking about. When you've got control of the food, you control the world by its belly. Second, the entire trade in agricultural commodities across the world, it's controlled by half a dozen corporations. I, I also want to tell you one thing, one thing that about since the question of alternatives and principles keeps coming back. There is a forgotten section, what I call the invisible clauses of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Four decades of Cold War, we only knew of one, Article 19, right? Not that it was unimportant. Of course it's important. Freedom of expression and speech. Yeah, Yeah. freedom of expression and speech. But look at Articles 22, 23 to 27. They are about the right to form unions, the right to association, the right to collective bargaining, the right to a decent family living wage, the right to paid holidays, the right to health, the right to work. All these are part of a universal declaration that every country on this planet is a signatory to. We can coalesce around this. The enforcement of government's obligations to implement the pledges that you made when you signed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. In the Indian case, there is a specific chapter in the Constitution called the Directive Principles of State Policy. I believe something like it exists in the Irish Constitution also. To look at the monopoly and capture and hijacking of the media. Mm-hmm. Okay? How differently the world is presented in the media from that which people actually experience. Mm-hmm. Now, you're seeing this wonderful, you know, edifying spectacle of Facebook, but... Do we put it together and point out to people that the digital monopolies are actually the nastiest in history? (coughs) Unlike any other earlier generation of monopolies, these guys own your personal data. They traffic in it. They sell it. They buy it. I call them human data traffickers. The kind of monopolies, 78% of all search, one company, 68% of all online auction, one company, That kind of monopoly is unrivaled and unfettered. By the way, when you look at the Exxon and when you look at Mobil and when you look at the great BP, look at BP's great oil spill of 2009, the room, as a New York Times reporter reported, the bulk of the room was filled not with reporters at the press conferences but PR agents because public relations jobs have been growing at a rate of three to one to journalism jobs in many countries, including and especially the United States. So the the picture the world is given is also one completely filtered through a corporate lens. So you need to think about all those when you're talking about alternatives. And yes, you can fight corporations. You can drive them out. People have fought major displacement battles in Latin America and Asia and Africa and defeated them sometimes. But the power of these is overwhelming. So you're going to have to think out again a new discourse. How do we join forces across 
different protests. That's what I was talking about. Fine, just some thoughts, and then I just want to bring in three more. Yeah, I mean, I guess just picking up on that point about how we fight corporations when they're cross borders, and I think it's a really important point, not just in in the way that you brought up oil, but also in terms of tax. So. I've forgotten what country he was from. There was an ex-finance minister that spoke at a conference I was at a few years ago who basically said that the directors of some company had flown in and they said, listen, if you give us this and this deal, so essentially you've got to subsidize us to come here, then we'll stay. But if not, we essentially they had the plane ready and they can just go to the country next door. And they were paying these countries off each other, getting their own way on tax. Um, and so one of the things that he was talking about what they did, and this is certainly something that they've been trying across the EU, is to, at that level, is to try and force all heads to say, okay, we are going to not have a race to the bottom. We're not going to have a competition between us and some of these tax levels. So it is very difficult, but the only way you can do that is to build cross-government alignment. Like there's a way as civil society in which we can help that. And I've seen this. It's not, I'm not, I don't mean this as it's, that it's easy, but essentially when you find these incredible injustices and you know some detail about them, you know where the money's coming from, you know who's been hurt, and you as much as possible raise awareness of those issues in the lead up to various summits, have the answers ready as to what needs to happen, and you find your civil society partners who can then reach out to journalists as well, you know, wherever you can, then there is a way in which you can create noise. And that's where we have seen some changes. I think tax avoidance has been one area where there has been definitely, compared to where we were, yeah. um, some wins. The problem is, of course, is that what's happened is that whilst we've got good at making the argument about tax avoidance, we're losing the argument overall about tax um, in terms of corporation taxes being lowered. There are ways in which this, these can be done, and it's not to say that they are easy, but really it's the only way to have sustainable change, like you say. And just quickly to pick up on your point, you know, not all economists are the same. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so, Four fives, honestly. I, you know, I agree with you. Ultimately, you want to eradicate classes. Certainly in this country, what they did is to undermine the kind of working class struggle was one of the ways in which they were able, the elite were able to have more power, were able to accumulate more wealth. In the interim, we do need to build more solidarity amongst working people, amongst people that are suffering the consequences of policies that aren't in their interests, that are making their everyday lives much harder. So how can we use what's left of the union movement or what's growing in some countries of the union movement? Where can we bring people together? And we know that that's happening, you know, with that example with the farmers coming together to build solidarity because, you know, these battles can't be won on our own and we have to bring people together. My question is about external borrowing, which is becoming a big burden to most of the Commonwealth countries. Mm. And I wish it can be addressed because this issue of external borrowing is creating a big burden to most of the countries because China is coming in and they are saying this money. Then finally, there is a lot of inequality in most of the countries. Please comment on that. It's about just economy. It's about corporations paying their fair share back. There's something that really worries me. It's about what is happening in the media that, that you so aptly described makes it this whole thing very palatable and very acceptable and why we would have people like uh, Bill Gates in, in, in spaces like this, why we would have the very rich people in, in a ski resort in Switzerland kind of determining the policies of the, of the world. So is there something we can do as citizens? Is there something we can do to hold the state to account? 
Well, can we do? Because it feels like all these people, all these millionaires are paying back and the whole the growth in philanthropy and alternative ways in which mm-hmm. there is some arbitration in the world, which is very worrying. And I'd love to hear what you feel about it. I'd just like to ask, isn't part of the problem the way we teach economics? Because the focus is on wealth rather than human beings and living within the finite planet that we live. Mm-hmm. So is it, don't we have to really change the way we teach economics because politicians are taking this advice from economists. Absolutely. So that's the other part of my question is, you know, I'm just reading Yanis's book. Yanis Varoufakis, former Greek finance minister. Yeah, just I'd like to ask both of you. And the weak must suffer what they must. And isn't this whole burden of austerity falling on the weakest countries and the weakest people mm-hmm. In the countries. Absolutely. Uh, so I just want to touch on the issue of empathy that was spoken about. It uh, really touched me. So the issue of when it comes to just economies or wealth distribution in Africa has been linked to land for the past years. Mm-hmm. So it's the access to land for young people, access to land for women. But if you look at countries, especially in Southern Africa, where even after independence, but they didn't get the land mm-hmm. and which they could create wealth from. So my question here really is, when it comes to empathy, somebody that is having privilege, how, how will it be possible? Is it even relevant for that person to feel empathy for, for the next person and just give up the land? So the relevance of empathy is really uh, what mm-hmm. I want to touch on. External borrowing is not something I know lots about, though I know it's, it's been an issue, so I might let um, Zenith pick that up. Um, in terms of the media, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I think um, Owen will know about this too. We see not only just a representation of the elite, but also establishment ideas. So there's very little space often in our mainstream media to say there is an alternative or not be treated, not have people like me be treated like we're a bit stupid, really. Yeah. Um, to some extent, that has changed... Because there are new media forms coming forward, um, and that might be happening in other countries as well, where people are just fed up, and they're coming together, and they're using new technologies and YouTube to kind of start doing their own thing, and websites, etc., where people go, I know what I try and do is just follow all kinds of people on Twitter, both here and internationally, the kind of um, dissenting thinkers, because otherwise I don't really know what's happening. Mm-hmm. And actually, this is shown in a number of polls around the world, Um, that people just don't trust the media anymore because they understand what they're hearing doesn't fit with their lives. So this is certainly key to change Um, in terms of what we can do individually. Like I say, we've got to try and find, unfortunately for now, we have to try and find the dissenters. And you'll see, you'll see sometimes on Twitter, people say, I'm trying to decolonize my Twitter thread. Can someone tell me who to follow? And lots of names will come up or female economists or whatever it may be. So on teaching, teaching economics, absolutely so. At least in the domestic agenda for class, um, what we're doing is that we are doing some economic boot camps for activists this year. The real issue of economics, as powerful and as important it is for our lives, being seen as some expert uh, issue that someone else is dealing with somewhere else that should not be allowed. And don't let anyone ever tell you that it's you know happening. Someone else has kind of got it covered because they don't know what's happening, as we've seen from the lack of knowledge of the financial crisis happening and the rest of it. So, you know, those of us that are running organizations and doing bits and pieces on this, it's on us to try and do some of that education. 
And certainly austerity has hit the weakest the most. In this country, it's probably been one of the most racist policies. It has hit women and we- the poorest, and then the poorest women, and then the poorest women of colour the most, quite substantially more than other groups. And, you know, it's interesting that people don't see it that way. Just in terms of um, decision-making and, and that point that was raised, you know, land ownership, and, you know, I understand that because people won't just give up their land, I think is the point. I think it's very hard to persuade people of that. You need policies in place. You need to have a transition where that land is better shared out. Of course, you need to explain why that needs to happen. The history of how that land was acquired and who essentially paid or worked for free or worked for very little to work that land. And so sometimes in a process of building empathy, you know, you need to do it in a sensible way, but I don't think that people just give up their land. They just don't. There's that great quote, people that have had privilege and equality feels like oppression mm. and I think we see that in many ways um, over the world and, and just finally on decision making and um, this does come back to representation so like I said with the UN and here I'm constantly on panels on discussions about issues of the welfare state for instance social security as some of you may think of it um, with people that have never experienced what it's like to you know have hardship and go on government benefits or go to state schools or go use public hospitals. And um, that's why we need to all, and I'm speaking at something later on this week and constantly talk about it and constantly try and encourage people from more working class backgrounds and from different backgrounds and people of color to run for powerful positions and get into those decision-making positions is that unless those voices are there, it's not going to change. Mm. So again, unfortunately, the onus is on us to... <laughs> To have to like take the blow and really like work to be in those spaces, even if it means, and this happens to me constantly, I'm, you know, the only person of color in the room and it's frustrating because you have to explain a lot of things. We just ha- we have to do it because if we're not there, then those conversations don't happen. You know, many of our countries, like say the UK or India, I would say technically the media are free. The way I describe it is politically free, imprisoned by profit. One of the battles that we need in the fight for democratization is democratization of media and decolonization of the digital. It is not a new battle, though the digital is a new battle. The democratization and decolonization of the media is a battle that you can go back to 1980 to the Sean McBride report of UNESCO and how stunningly accurate many of the prophecies and projections of that report and its associated papers have been in the building of monopolies. We can fight them, you can defeat them. The teaching of economics, well, it's also the teaching of history. It's the teaching of politics. Economics has taken the central, you know, it's taken the pole position. So that's that's what's destroying everything else. And yes, obviously, it's going to hurt the poorest of the poor, the weakest of the weak. In India, it's devastating the indigenous peoples, the tribes. It's devastating the Dalits, the scheduled castes, the so-called former untouchables, it's wiping out the kind of scholarship structures they have for their education, especially for higher education. These are areas where the Dalits have made significant advances in the last 20, 30 years, now being bashed up bank and fund jargon like direct benefits transfer. Earlier, governments used to give their budgets to universities, and the universities would advance some money for the scholarships of students and then get it reimbursed by the government. Now the government says direct benefit transfer. It'll take a year to reach that student, who in the meantime is essentially self-funding. 
the kind of things that have happened in agriculture have devastated women farmers. And by the way, the speaking of the need for the new language, the workload of women has more than doubled in farming, but their work participation rate is at a historic low because most of their work is unpaid work. It's not going to be calculated. So the burden of austerity is on them. Please give a big round of applause for our fantastic panel. So that's it for today's podcast, but you can continue the discussion online by tweeting us at Commonwealth.org or by finding us on Facebook with the same username. That's Commonwealth.org. You'll find links on Facebook and Twitter to Commonwealth Insights, policy briefs that explore a whole range of issues such as these we've explored in this show. Anything from migration, climate justice to women negotiating peace. We implore you to go onto Apple Podcasts or a podcatcher of your choice and go and write us a review because it helps visibility for the show and gets more people then to be aware of us so they can listen too. I'm Rachel Brown. You've been listening to Commonwealth Voices. The Commonwealth Foundation. More voices for a fairer world. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.